I'll give you three places you can mark uh, this afternoon. Luke 23, Matthew 27, and John chapter 19 will be our primary verses. Last Sunday was Palm Sunday. I mentioned then that the Lord would have about a week before this event would take place. Uh, We made the point on Sunday that the God of the Bible is very precise when it comes to numbers and dates and times. Case in point last week was foretelling the very day from the book of Daniel when Jesus would actually arrive on the scene. We call it Palm Sunday. We talked about on Palm Sunday that it was prophetic. There were three different prophecies fulfilled on Palm Sunday. We had Zechariah 9, where it says, Behold, your king comes to you. He's lowly, he's humble, and he'll be riding a donkey. That was the first prophecy. The second one is a messianic Psalm 118 that had to be quoted on a particular day. For in it, it says, this is the day that the Lord has made will rejoice and be glad in it. It was a very specific, special day. And it happened to be the psalm that was being quoted that the people were speaking when Jesus was riding the donkey down that Palm Sunday road. Pharisees understood it completely. They got all ticked off at Jesus, and they said, rebuke your followers. They think you're the Messiah. And the reason they said that is they were quoting Psalm 118. So that was the second one. Now, the third one is Daniel 9, verses 24 and 25, that says, Know therefore, Daniel, and understand that from the going forth of the command to rebuild and restore Jerusalem will be 69 weeks, or exactly 173,880 days. And we went to Nehemiah. That gave us the beginning command. Nehemiah got it from King Artaxerxes. That's where you start. You count out 173,880 days. It brings you to April 6th, right to the very day that Jesus was riding that donkey. They were quoting Psalm 118. And so we had three specific prophecies fulfilled on Palm Sunday. One of the points we made that God is so technical when it gets into the detail of the timing and events that... Um, Jesus said to the jot and the tittle, you can't take anything out of, out of the, the book that you hold in your, your hands this Good Friday without seeing the complexity and the perfection of the use of numbers and dates and having them come precisely and fulfilled as the Lord would have them. Now, seven is the number of completion. Jesus on the cross said seven different sayings. Three of them were to the Father, and the other ones were to those standing by. And so seven is an important number. John chose the number seven when he wrote the Gospel of John. We say Matthew, Mark, and Luke are synoptic Gospels. That means they're very, very similar. John's different. There's no genealogy. Uh, He decides to write about seven miracles, and the Lord did a whole lot more than that. Don't you want to say amen? He did a whole lot more than that, but John just picked seven. He says, there's many other things that I could tell you about. He says, but these things that I'm writing that you might believe that Jesus is God. And then, seven I am statements, but then there were seven miracles. And we're going to look at one of those miracles this morning. Seven I am statements, seven miracles. And he's giving his version, a complete version of, of the gospel. There's seven days in a week, you start over. There's seven notes on a scale. Do, re, mi, fa, sol, la, ti. You got seven. Then you have to start over 
with dough. My point is simple. Jesus' words, his last words before he died, uh, he speaks seven different times, and I don't think it's a coincidence at all. Famous last words from other people. Karl Marx died on March 14th, 1883. His housekeeper came to him and said, tell me your last words and I'll write them down. Marx replied, go on, get out of here. Last words are for fools who haven't said enough already. So that's Karl Marx. He probably has a different opinion of that right now. The last words from uh, P.T. Barnum as he was dying was, what were today's receipts? As if it's going to matter at all. The last words of Napoleon, he simply said, chief of the army. The great Baptist minister Charles Spurgeon talked about his testimony a couple weeks ago. His last words were, Jesus died for me. And John Wesley, the founder of the Methodist church, said, the best of all is God is with us. So everybody's going to have their last words. We don't know uh, when it's going to be. We were talking in the prayer room, uh, one of the guys that was just working, and, and he witnessed firsthand an old man get hit by a car. Uh, the guy was blinded by the sun, didn't see him at all. It was a complete accident. But you just never know. It says it's appointed unto man once to die and then the judgment. So we don't know what our last words really are going to be. Luke chapter 23. We'll see the first of the seven sayings that Jesus spoke as he clearly foretold this day ahead of time. But the disciples didn't get it. I mean, the Lord came right out and told them straight out that I'm going to Jerusalem. I'm going to be betrayed. They're going to beat me and scourge me. Then they're going to crucify me. And after three days, I'm going to rise again. Now, did I say that pretty plainly and clearly? Well, Jesus said it just as plainly and clearly to his disciples, right over their head. They are arguing about when the Lord gets to Jerusalem, who is going to be in charge? Because they were sure the kingdom was coming. They weren't thinking death and crucifixion. So we read here in Luke 23, verse 26, Now as they led him away, they laid hold of a certain man, Simon of Cyrene, who was coming from the country, and on him they laid the cross that he might bear it after Jesus. And a great multitude of the people followed him, women who mourned and lamented him. But Jesus, turning to them, said, Daughters of Jerusalem, do not weep for me. Weep for yourselves and for your children. For indeed the days are coming in which they will say, Blessed are the barren, the wombs which never bore, and the breasts that were never nursed. Then they will begin to say to the mountains, Fall on us, and on the hills cover us. For if they do these things in the green wood, what will be done in a dry There were also two other criminals with him to be put to death. And when they had come to the place that's called Calvary, there they crucified him and the criminals, one on the right hand, the other on the left. When you sing the song, A Hill Far Away, uh, is where they crucified the Lord, that's really not how it happened. The Lord would have been placed at ground level, and this was done on purpose to initiate fear And so as people were coming and going, it was meant to intimidate. It was meant to incite fear of ever messing with a Roman. A Roman can come up to any one of you and command that you carry his backpack for a mile. Using that illustration, when Jesus said, if somebody asks you to go a mile with him, go too. 
blow his mind, do something that is totally unexpected. Um, It's disputed where Calvary is. Constantine's mother came, and she decided where the holy sites were, so there's this huge Catholic church in the Christian section of the city of Jerusalem. But I believe it had to be outside the city gates, and uh, right next to this, about 100 feet away, is a beautiful garden. It's maintained by the Brits to this day, and there's a very elaborate, expensive tomb that I believe is an A-site, Golgotha. So they brought him to a place called Calvary. Well, that's actually another name for Golgotha, meaning the place of the skull. And I believe the Lord left that landmark there, and that's the highlight of the trip. I mean, we try to make that the very last thing you do before you go home, and it really does leave quite an impression on you. But then it says, and this is the first thing that Jesus said, and it says there they crucified him. This was the most cruelest of, um, of um, the Roman tortures. And I wasn't going to tell this story, but we only have one service today, so why not, right? Uh, when I first got saved, this would have been early 70s, I was the only guy in this church with long hair and a beard. And um, an evangelist came through, and he was known for putting on his dramatic skits. And he needed somebody to play Jesus. And he looked around, and I was the only one even close. So part of it was actually being put on a cross. And uh, for me, they tied me up there. And um, I got to tell you, after a half an hour, as the skit was going on and people were coming forward with different stories and telling uh, how they got saved or whatever, or getting saved as the evangelist is preaching, I'm experiencing this, and I have to say these words. So this is sort of personal to me, and, um, but just a half an hour, I can't tell you how painful that, that got to be. And just try it sometime. Just try holding your hands out or tie them up for a half an hour. And that wasn't anywhere near um, the form of crucifixion. You died from suffocation because you continually had to pull yourself up and down in order um, even just to breathe. But his first words we read in verse 34, and Jesus says, Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they do. And they were casting lots for his clothes at this time. Jesus is going to speak to the Father three times. And this is the first one where it's between him and his Father. And he says, Father, forgive them for they don't know what they do. Um, You know, life is full of dealing with sinners. I'm a sinner, you're a sinner. I make mistakes, you make mistakes. And um, probably the hardest two words in the world to say is what? I'm sorry. And then the next part is that somebody says it, especially if you've been hurt or wronged, is to tell them, well, I forgive you. And here, and this, isn't, this should not be considered a concise uh, teaching or doctrine on, on forgiveness. Because I also read in the Bible, Jesus said, if you don't repent, um, you will perish. You know, if you don't take the initiative and acknowledge 
the fact that you really have broken God's law, he's not going to forgive you. That's the justice of God. But in their ignorance, they had no idea who they were dealing with. These Roman centurions, um, there's a place that we go down about 30 feet when we go to Jerusalem where uh, it's past the Praetorium where they show how the Roman guards killed their time by playing games. And they still have these games etched into the original stone that would have been a street during that time. And of course, they mocked the, the criminal. They took advantage of him. And they were going to die, and it was sport for the Roman to do, them, to do this to the Lord. They pulled out his beard. And... Um, Anybody that's had a beard and had it yanked on by a grandkid knows what that's like. It hurts. Um, the lashes, the beating, many people died from the, the lashes. And that's the reason this guy up here had to carry the cross. The Lord was always already very, very weak by this time. And he could not no longer hold up his own cross. But this um, man named Simon here carried it the rest of the way for him. But I just want to make a personal one of this first one here. It's Good Friday. And um, if I would just say that there's a person that you need to forgive that is actually wanting to make things right with you, I want you to just, in your own mind's eye, who's that person? Who comes to mind? And if they have made an effort to try to make things right with you and you're holding things up, then this is for you. Jesus forgave them out of their ignorance. But Jesus said, if you don't forgive uh, from your heart, just so say, okay, yeah, blow it off. I forgive you, but you don't mean it. He clarifies it, says, if somebody, you go to your brother and you you tell him you've sinned against me and I want to make it right. He says, okay, let's make it right. Well, it's Good Friday. And if that's you today and you're dealing with, with somebody, a family member or whatever, and they're, really want to make things right, then you have no right to hold that against them. And Jesus, of course, told the story of the two debtors, one who was forgiven a little and one who was forgiven much. And we're the ones who are forgiven much. We have a debt that I can never repay. This is a really good place for an amen. There's no way I can pay that debt because I have to be perfect, and I'm not. And so the debt was paid. And here, in their ignorance, because of their ignorance, the Lord said, Father, forgive them. Why? They don't know what they're doing. They don't have a clue what's taking place right now. Also, what's happening here, that I'll make a point with each of the sayings, it is going to fulfill a prophecy. Paul read Isaiah 53, and um, this is fulfilling verse 12 where it says he bore the sins of many and he made intercession for the transgressors. He's standing in the gap and he's asking the Father to forgive these guys, making intercession for the Romans. Our Lord Jesus prayed for those who were um, sinning because he was fulfilling the word of God. This had to take place because Isaiah said so. Well, let's go to the second one. We're still in Luke 23, but let's pick it up in now the next verse, 35 through 43. And it says, And the people stood looking on, but even the rulers with their sneers saying he saved others, 
Let him save himself if he's the Christ, the chosen of God. And the soldiers, they also mocked him, um, coming and offering him sour wine and saying, if you're the king of the Jews, then save yourself. And an inscription also was written over him in the letters of Greek, Latin, and Hebrew. This is a king of the Jews. Then one of those criminals who were hanging began to curse and blaspheme, saying, if you're the Christ, save yourself, and by the way, save us too. But it was all in mockery. But the other, uh, the other gospels say both of them did it for a while. But something happened to this other guy. As he's watching this guy say, Father, forgive them? After all he'd been through? Who would do something like that? And he started to believe. Maybe he heard Jesus somewhere before. But the other answered and rebuked him, saying, Don't you even fear God, seeing that you are under the same condemnation? We indeed justly, for we receive the due reward for our deeds. But this man has done nothing wrong. This guy knew Jesus was innocent. And then he said to Jesus, Lord, will you remember me when you come into your kingdom? Before I go any farther, I just want to mention something here. Here's a man who never went to church, never had communion, uh, has no good works. He's a thief, right? He doesn't know how to say the sinner's prayer. And all he knows how to do is say, Lord, will you remember me when you come into your kingdom? That guy got saved right there on the spot. Now, I tell you that because there may be somebody listening today, and why is this so special and if this is really true, then, then Lord, show me. How do I go about doing that? Gang, it's all about here. It's not what comes out here. It's what's in here. And what was coming out from this guy's heart was, Lord, I know I'm guilty. We deserve it. I know you're not. And I happen to believe, after watching you for a while, that you really are who you say you are. So, when this thing is all over, can I go with you? And the Lord said to him, verse 43, this is the second thing Jesus said from the cross. Verily, verily, if you have the King James, mine is the new King James. He said, assuredly, I say to you, today, you're going to be with me in paradise. Well, wait a second. Jesus is going to be in the grave for three days. And that's not heaven. We read in Ephesians 4, verse 8, It says, when he ascended on high, he led captives captives, and he gave gifts to men. Now, this he ascended, what does it mean that he first descended into the lowest part of the earth? And he who descended is also the one who ascended far above all the heavens that he might fill all things. So, Paul writing to the Ephesians gives us a little insight. Jesus said... As Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the great fish, so the Son of Man will be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. Three days. Jesus said to this guy, today. So that would be the first day. And where's he going? To paradise. In the Gospel of Luke, Jesus tells the story of a rich man and Lazarus, who was a poor man, who was a beggar. They both die. I'm quoting now Luke 16, 22. It says, so the beggar died and he was carried by the angels to Abraham's bosom. My grandmother tells stories of her mother 
before she died, angels showing up and saying it's time. And in the way Grandma tells the story is she actually asked for more time. She says, I have to do a few things. And it was actually granted to her. And if it's anybody but my grandma telling me the story, I'm raising, I don't know, maybe you're telling me the truth, maybe you're not, but it's my grandma. <laughs> she, had, she had a connection with the Lord that wasn't deep biblically, but fellowship-wise, the Lord had ways of, of communicating with her. And if she said angels were there at my great-grandma's bedside and having conversation, end of discussion, that happened. So here we have the angels, it's biblical, carried away. We often wonder, what happens at death? Well, in this case here, angels come and either take you to heaven or demons might show up if you're not saved and take you to the other place. This place called Abraham's bosom was a place of comfort. It's paradise. This is what Jesus was referring to on his second saying on the cross, today, you're gonna be with me in Abraham's bosom. It was a place of comfort. Who was there? Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, David, all the prophets, all the saints. Hebrews tells us all these Old Testament saints, what happened to them? It says they all died in faith, not having received the promise, but they had this hope. They looked forward to another city whose builder and maker is God. And we find that in the book of Hebrews. What Jesus did, what we read in Ephesians, is he emptied that chamber out. Because we read in the 26th chapter of Matthew, verse 52, it says, after Jesus' resurrection, many of the Old Testament saints appeared to people in the city of Jerusalem. Now, how weird is that? And now having a lost loved one that died in faith show up for lunch someday. They were just passing through and the Lord allowed this to happen and I don't know why. They were just making their way to heaven. There is no such place as Abraham bosoms today. My Bible says to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. Good place for an amen, right? To be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord and I believe it's instantaneous. None of the soul sleep stuff. It just happens. Why we insist on wanting to stay here is way beyond me. I mean, if we get one glimpse what this guy uh, saw, we'd be saying, let's, let's be out of here. So this also fulfills Isaiah chapter 53, verse 12, um, where it, it tells us that he was numbered with the transgressors. This was Isaiah telling us that he would be numbered with the transgressors. That's the second saying. Now we need for the third one to go to the Gospel of John, chapter 19, on verse 25. All the disciples were afraid, and all except for John, uh, he was the only disciple there. Verse 25, it says, Now there stood by the cross of Jesus his mother, and his mother's sister Mary, the wife of Cleopas, and Mary Magdalene. When Jesus therefore saw his mother and his disciple whom he loved, we're in God's, John's gospel now, that's how John refers to himself standing by. He said to his mother, now Jesus is now speaking. This time he's speaking for the last time to Mary. He says, woman, behold your son. So this would have been the last words that Jesus would have said to his mother. 
I want to take you back to the first recorded words of Mary. This is John 19. I want to go back to John 2, which is what, you can go there and turn there if you want to, but I can just quote it. The first mention of Mary speaking, and he, it was sort of a rebuke. The first time she's brought up, it's the wedding at Cana. The wine had run out, John 2 verse 3, and the mother of Jesus said to him, they have no wine, implying, son, do something about it. And Jesus said to her, woman, what does your concern have to do with me? My hour has not yet come. Now, just for a side fact, this saying, my hour has not yet come, happens to appear seven times in the Gospel of John. And it wasn't his time. But then, the night of the Last Supper, what does he say? My hour has come. And that happens to be the seventh time in this, in this gospel. But here is um, the first and last words. The first words were sort of a re- rebuke. Of course, he goes ahead and he does it anyway. And only the servants knew about it. But I also want to tell you what the final words are. Because in John 2, we have the last recorded words of Mary. And I like this, and I like to share this with my Catholic friends. Uh, Verse five says, and his mother said to the servants, whatever he says to you, do it. I like that. These are the final words of Mary. And what does she say? Whatever Jesus says, do it. And those are the final recorded words uh, to her. So, woman, behold your son. Um, Jesus was, and then he said to his disciples, this would be John, behold your mother. And from that hour, that disciple took her to his own house. Now, what's interesting, Joseph is probably dead. But the Bible clearly teaches that Jesus had brothers and sisters, plural. And yet, they were not entrusted to them. The scriptures said that his brothers and sisters did not believe on him until after the resurrection. And so the Lord was entrusting Mary to John um, from James and John. And he took her home from that, from that very hour. Now, two prophecies are fulfilled at this time. When Jesus was eight days old, they took him to the temple to be dedicated and uh, after he was circumcised. And uh, it was Simon, he was a prophet, approaches, he's been waiting his whole life to see Jesus, because it was told him that he wouldn't die without seeing the Messiah. And one day, there they are. And so he goes to her and he begins to speak, and he tells her, a sword shall pierce through your own soul someday. That's being fulfilled right here. Mary has to look at her son on the cross. Any mother's heart would go out, of course. But here, at eight days old, there's a prophecy that's saying your heart is going to be broken like you wouldn't believe. It also fulfills Psalm 69, verse 8. The sword was going through her own soul. The psalmist said, It's so eloquently in Psalm 69, verse 8, I have become a stranger unto my brethren and an alien unto my mother's children. Again, the plurality. The sword was going through Mary's soul. So 
The third statement from the cross was given to his mother and to John. And um, let's move on to the fourth statement. We need to go to the book of Matthew, chapter 27. In verse 45, Jesus was on the cross from nine o'clock in the morning till three o'clock in the afternoon. And it says, now the sixth hour, that would have been noon, until the ninth hour there was darkness over all the land. And about the ninth hour, Jesus cried out with a loud voice, Eli, Eli, lamni sadachthani, that is, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And we see three sort of mysteries happening at this time. And the first one is that it was dark in the middle of the day. What kind of day is this? That it was dark from noon till three o'clock in the afternoon. This was a supernatural darkness. Um, and there's an, there's an old song in the hymns that says, Well might the sun in darkness hide and shut his glories in when Christ the mighty maker died for man, the creature's sin. The very one he created him came into his own. Instead of receiving him, they crucified him. And even creation itself, this has happened before at a judgment. If you remember back in Egypt, remember that there was a darkness for three days. It was so thick, the Bible says, it could be felt. There was a darkness uh, over Egypt before the final judgment of the Passover and the death of the firstborn. That was a judgment. But here's another judgment. And in the same way, there's a darkness where even the sun uh, was refusing to shine. Um, The third thing that we see happening here, I can't describe. How, 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 How can any preacher or any person tell you that God the Father and the Son have always existed? They've never been separated. They've always been. I'm finite, okay? I don't understand the infinite. And uh, the Bible tells us his ways are past finding out. But I do know that the scriptures tells us there were times when Jesus was by himself in like John 16, behold the hour cometh he and now comes, that you will be scattered every man to his own and you're gonna leave me alone. But then he says, yet I'm not alone because the Father is with me. But at the cross, the Father had to leave him. And the loneliness of the Savior, this had never been experienced before. And it elicited this cry, and this is what this is. It's a cry. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? This fulfills Psalm 22, verse 1. David wrote it, and it's how Psalm uh, 22 begins. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? The loneliness of the Savior on the cross. Why was he lonely? Why has he been forsaken of the Father? Well, gang, that's what sin does. Sin will separate you from God. You cannot continue willfully sinning and think you're gonna have fellowship with the creator. So you wanna say amen to that? 
There is. You, you, all, old things pass away. Behold, all things become new. There's just certain things that just go out the window once you're born again. And um, to think otherwise, in Romans chapter 6, Paul addresses this. Uh, uh, they had this attitude in Rome. Hey, God's in the business of forgiving. Great. Let's sin. If God's in the business of forgiving, then let's sin and let grace abound. Paul says, God forbid. That's not what it meant. Don't you realize that when you were baptized, that you were symbolically saying something is going down into the water and dying, and you're coming out this new creation. Old things pass away, all things are becoming new. Now, it doesn't happen overnight. This is a process of time where the Lord, you hang in there, gang, and you keep coming every Good Friday, every Wednesday, make men's prayer with you can, make church a priority above other things. I don't like this new system they got going where they're putting soccer above church on Sundays. I hope I'm not the only one that has this problem. And um, parents should be saying stuff about this. That's not our priorities. That we think this is more important. And it's gonna be one of those places where you're gonna have to count the cost and see where your priorities lie. I remember talking to somebody before the service. I remember on Good Friday, everything shut down between 12 and 3. If not the whole day. You remember, remember those days? And um, not anymore, of course. But that's, that's what I remember growing up with. So this, the father was separated from the son. For how, how long? I don't know. Bible doesn't tell me. Just knows that there was that moment of time that this judgment had to take place. And somehow Jesus was separated for the first time in eternity from his father. We need to go back to the Gospel of John, chapter 19, for the fifth statement from the cross. This is the shortest of all of them, John 19, looking at verse 28. This would be right after Jesus talks to John and his mother. The next verse, he says, after this, verse 28 Jesus, knowing that all things were accomplished, said that the scriptures might be fulfilled, again, always prophecy, said, I thirst. Fulfilling Psalm 22, verse 15, and I'll quote it. My strength is dried up like a pot shred, and my tongue clings to my jaw. You have brought me to the dust of death. And the agony that uh, he went through uh, in this image of your tongue just sort of stuck, it's so dry, and that uh, he declared he he thirst. This is the shortest of all the statements that our Lord made from the cross uh, in John 19, 28, I thirst. In the Greek New Testament, it is one word of four letters. It is the only statement in which our Lord referred to his body and his physical suffering. With all the other stuff he was going through, this is the only thing that he mentions personally about himself. And again, it is fulfilling prophecy. Psalm 22, verse 15. In the same chapter, the sixth statement from the cross, we need to look at verse 30. It tells us, that they, well, let's read verse 29. So they fill uh, sour wine that was sitting there and they filled the sponge with sour wine, put it on hyssop, and he put it on his mouth. I, 
believe one of the reasons he even asked for it because he couldn't speak, but yet he had things he wanted to say. And so when Jesus had received the sour wine, bringing up his tongue, he said, it is finished. And bowing his head, he gave up the spirit, realizing somehow judgment now is over. The sins of the world were now completely, it was possible in, in Isaiah it says, and many will be saved. It doesn't say everybody will be saved. He will cover the sins of many, not all. God's not willing that any should perish, but not everybody's gonna exercise their free will like perfect example. You got one guy in one hand who says, forget about it. I don't want anything to do with him. He blasphemes. And on the other hand, the guy who has a softened heart and he believes, they have a free will and they exercised it. Here, the work has been done. When you compare the gospel records, you discover that he shouted this statement. With a loud voice, he cried, Tetelestai, it is finished. And then he bowed his head, and he released his spirit. None of us can do that. I sure wish I could. And say, you want to go home now? Let's go home. <laughs> and, but only when his time had come. It was not a cry of defeat. It was a shout of victory. In the Greek language in which John wrote, this statement was the word with ten letters that we call tetelestai. And it also fulfilled the very first prophecy in the Bible. Genesis chapter three, verse 15, is the very first prophecy in the Bible, and it speaks about this moment. I'll quote it. I will put enmity between you and the woman. This is God the Father speaking to the serpent. And between your seed and her seed, he shall bruise your head. In other words, he's gonna defeat you. And you will bruise his heel. That was a suffering that took place on this day. So on this day, the very first prophecy where Satan has no longer the keys of hell and death. I'll take those now. They belong to me. First order of business, where did he go? Down the hill. Two places, two chambers. He says, I'll take those now. There's some people that have been waiting for me for quite a while. And I'm, I'm come to set them free. You no longer have the keys of hell and death any longer. So the fifth statement here from, from, from the cross is to Telestai, it is finished. Brings us to, that was, uh, I'm sorry, that was the sixth. Let's go to the final one. Let's go to Luke chapter 23. Luke 23, looking at verse 46. Again, we read, the sun was darkened and the veil of the temple was torn in two. I'm gonna come back to that in just a, a moment. And when Jesus had cried out with a loud voice, he said, Father, into your hands I commend my spirit. And having said this, he breathed his last. We find here, and the first thing that we gotta deal with is that Jesus actually died. He died. His death was not an illusion. He actually died. The Lord Jesus had a real human body, he experienced all this of the uh, sinless um, infirmities that we have as humans. 
He knew what it was like to grow up. He knew what it was like to eat and to drink and to sleep. Our Lord Jesus knew what it was like to die. He actually died. John records that the officials made sure of it. Careful to be sure that Jesus had died, when the soldiers came to look at the bodies on the crosses, they discovered that Jesus was already dead. Therefore, they did not break his legs, but they did the other two. And Jesus was already dead. Then Joseph and Nicodemus wanted to get custody of the body of Jesus to give it a decent burial. They had to check with Pilate, and Pilate marveled that Jesus was already dead. The official evidence of the Roman Empire was that Jesus actually had died. Roman records. Our Lord Jesus accomplished the work that God had given him to do, and when he gave up his spirit, several miracles took place as he's dying right then. We're told, number one, the veil in the temple was rent from the top to the bottom. That had to be a scary sight who who ever was on duty that day because to see the holy of holies meant certain death. Now, instead of that, we have an illustration saying, come on in. The gates are wide open. Instead of being fearful of the holy of holies, the Lord is now saying, boldly come before the throne of grace. I've given you access. I've opened the door wide open. So that was one of the miracles that took place. The other one, is Matthew 26, I mentioned it earlier, is that people came out of the, their graves. Our, our, our society is captivated with um, people coming back from the dead, the living dead or vampires or whatever. But actually, biblically, it happened one time where besides Lazarus, uh, Matthew 26, and it said many that were after his resurrection came out of the grave. Well, that's a miracle, gang, wouldn't you agree? That happened. And then finally it says it was a great earthquake. And uh, to try to explain that, um, the, the earth just in unbelief. It says in Romans that creation is waiting, just like you and I are waiting. Here it is, Palm Sunday 2016. What are we doing? Well, I hope we're busy waiting and watching. Isn't that what he told us to do? He said, I want you to watch, I want you to pray, and I want you to occupy. Just keep doing it. The warning in the scriptures is in the last days, people won't endure sound doctrine. Good Friday, I got other things to do. Or uh, the importance of studying and being serious about studying God's word, making it a priority in your life. Creation couldn't believe it. Sun refuses to shine. The, the earth begins to quake because of the creator of the universe has now died. And um, the angels, I'm sure they're shaking their head going, what in the world is going on? Because it says they de- desire to look into those things concerning our salvation. That you would do that? The creator would become a man and do that? And they're interested. It says they desire to look into these things that we, we um, have become very, very familiar with as we've been around for many a Palm Sunday. But my prayer is um, this to Telestai, it is finished. 
I'll close with this this, this, this afternoon. Um, about to tell us die. I don't know if it's a poem, and I don't know if, if it's a song or not. It simply says, Lifted up was he to die. It is finished was his cry. Now in heavenly exalted high, hallelujah, what a savior. You know it's Palm Sunday, right? But Resurrection Sunday is coming soon. Amen? So, He's our Savior. My question for you is if he's not your Lord, please don't let another Palm Sunday go by without you getting the most important day in human history and uh, having the response of the thief who said, Lord, he's not concerned with your words and there's nothing you can do to earn it. You don't deserve it. But he'll... Those who come to him with a broken and a contrite heart, he says, he will in no wise cast out. Amen? Amen. Let's stand and we'll close uh, with, a, with a prayer, but also with a closing song. Lord, what can we say? We're humbled, trying to understand how the creator of all things came to this planet, lived for 30 years, and then had three years of a public ministry where you changed the course of history for so many. Lord, because of what you've done for us, we simply want others to know. So this Good Friday, Lord, I just pray for any that have not yet asked you to be their savior and realize that the sin that's keeping them awake at night or maybe sin of holding sin and unforgiveness against any, Lord, set them free. Lord, as you said, Father, forgive them. They don't know what they do. Help us be like you in all these manners. And thank you again for the cross. In Jesus' name, amen.